Good evening. Um, my name is Gareth Irwin. Um, I am part of the preaching group in um, Kirkpatrick. That usually means that you come along in the evening and find out that it's not either Christoph or David and kind of go, oh, shame. But unfortunately, you have to put up with us. We, um, we in the group thank you that you give us feedback along the way and encourage us as we try and engage you with the Bible and try and get better at doing that, which is, is the desire, I suppose, of the group. One of the things about using the audio Bible is that none of you have turned to look it up. Um, and I would love if you could grab one of the Pew Bibles, um, turn to page 1137 and have Romans 10 in front of you. And um, then you can refer to that as we, we travel through that. Um, this has been a fairly long series as we've looked through Romans. We're thinking of having medals commissioned for those of you who've attended every single one. And if you're slightly more high-tech and want to refer back, um, some of the sermons are available on the web. I've had a listen. It's not pretty listening to yourself um, preaching, but, but apparently that's what we want to do. <laughs> so before we get started, let's pray and ask God to come and help us as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, the Bible that we have before us, this Bible that has been in the hands of the common man for um, over 400 years, Lord, we thank you that this is your word, and your Holy Spirit was there inspiring the authors of this book so that they wrote down your very thoughts. And Lord, as we come to Romans chapter 10, um, we pray that that same Holy Spirit will come now, breathe through this book, so that we would be listening to you as if um, we were there as a, at its inception. And Lord, I pray that you would mold our hearts and make us ready to be challenged by what truths are contained in these next few verses. We ask this in and through your precious name. Amen. As you know, if you were here last Sunday night, no, the Sunday night beforehand, whenever we were last in, in Romans, as Christoph was alluding to, we were really in the, the depths of this great debate that Paul was having about what is happening to the, the people of Israel, God's, God's chosen people. And again, chapter 10 is more of the same. So there is a lot of that detail, specifically thinking about the Israelites and how God is going to speak with them. But I'd refer you to one of the, one of the verses that we've read in chapter 10, down in chapter, verse 12 in chapter 10, where it says, For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all. And that, what I want to do is, that's my verse that's saying, whilst we're looking at what God is going to do with the Jews, this is the very same stuff that is going to impact in our lives and is going to impact us as a congregation as we try and bring the good news of Jesus Christ to our neighbours and friends and family and the people in Ballyhackamore. And so Paul starts, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Bang. Don't miss it because this is the verse that we have to get to understand um, if we're going to make sense of the rest of the chapter. Do you see what he's saying? Brothers and sisters, people gathered to hear my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites is that they may be saved. J.B. Phillips talks about this idea of heart's desire as it's from the very bottom of my heart. The core of my being is my desire to see these people saved. But it's not just emotion. It's not just stuff that hypes us up and gets us sort of excited, but it drives us to action. What Paul is saying is that as he starts this chapter, he's looking at it and he's going, my heart's desire drives me to prayer to God for the Israelites that they may be saved. 
It's not just emotion, it's stuff that causes him to act. But it comes from the fact that Paul raises, realizes that the primary need for the people of Israel, God's chosen people, is that they may be saved, that they have this relationship restored with God. As we, we start this evening, what about us? What is our heart's desire for our kids, for our family, for our church? Is it to, to get a better life, get a better job, to get a better car, to get bigger holes for our church, to be doing more stuff because that's what we do to get more staff? And more importantly, you know, is, is it our heart's desire to see people come to faith? And if so, are we inspired to pray? Is that actually something that drives us to our knees so that we're praying for our friends and family and we're praying for our neighbors? We're praying for the people in Billy Hackamore. Paul continues explaining his concern for the Israelites, and it's the key to the rest of the chapter. He says he can testify about the Israelites. They're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Paul knows all about this. Some of you will know when he's writing to the church in Philippi in chapter 3, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. On the eighth day. I was with the people of Israel. I was with the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. As for zeal, I was persecuting the church. As for righteousness, I was based on the law. It was faultless. Paul was a zealous person who thought that he was getting right with God by what he was doing. But yet he says, their zeal is not based on knowledge. I think it's an interesting one because a lot of us can be sitting in church and we have a lot of knowledge and not a lot of zeal and that's often our problem. But I think one of the things in society at the moment is that actually there's this zeal for some kind of spirituality. I don't think people would really say that they're seeking after a God that we would understand from the Bible. But people this day think, you know, oh, I want to try and do the right stuff. I think I'm trying to do the right stuff. There are shops gathering around the place where you can look at crystals and you can read about angel books and so on. And there's this sort of hunger for some kind of spirituality. There's a lot of zeal, there's a lot of enthusiasm, but there's a lot, a lot of knowledge. Paul goes on and says, they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They had tried to create their own way. If you're out in the Sunday mornings, you'll know that we've been looking at the Ten Commandments. And the big challenge is that as you read through those, we think this is, at first glance, this is kind of good. You know, I'm not trying to kill anybody. I really haven't stolen an awful lot. You know, I'm pretty good at this. But actually what we find is that the Ten Commandments just seem to be so much more than we can ever attain. And the Jews, in an effort to try and create a law and a, a set of laws that they could, could do, codified it even more. Beyond the Ten Commandments, there were almost 700 laws that a good Jew had to try and follow. And the point is that they had messed out what Paul was trying to say early in, earlier in Romans. In 3.21, he says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. They were missing Paul's argument that he summarizes brilliantly in the next verse. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Wow. Don't miss it. All of redemptive history from Eden to heaven is completed, fulfilled, finished by the work of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. All this idea of the law, so 2,000 years of history with God's people, the Israelites, and from the cross and beyond, is finished, is completed, it's culminated through what Christ has done on the cross. 
He is the end. He's the destination of what that 2,000 years was for. But more than that, he's the completion of all that the law was talking about. And it's everything that we have to live for hence from now. And so Paul, like a good symphony, he starts off with a theme that then disappears and comes back again and again to um, play in the lower parts of the orchestra and then gradually building and building. Paul returns to the theme that Christoph highlighted, this idea of righteousness apart from the law. And so that Paul can explain it to, to the Jews, to, he's trying, to the people he's trying to convince, he goes and quotes from the Old Testament. The very point is to saying that this is what the God's people, this is what God was talking about from the very beginning. So he says that Moses writes about the law and says, the person who does these things will live by them, quoting Leviticus 18. It's an interesting one because, again, it's a bit like the Ten Commandments. You read that initially and go, oh, that's kind of good. That's a good deal. If, if we do what we're supposed to, then we, we live. And um, that's, that's the deal that God strikes. But again, as we look at the Ten Commandments and find that we fall very short, the whole point of this phrase is that we're going to fall short. By human weakness, we can't live by the law. And consequently, we're, we're going to struggle. It also points, though, to the one person who has kept the law perfectly. The fact is that we need something. We need someone to come along who will actually fulfill the law completely, to live the law perfectly, and points ultimately to the fact that we need Jesus Christ in our lives. Paul goes on and says, actually, the point is that the law was hard work. It was hard to attain. And then he says that actually if we, we grab onto this righteousness by faith, we don't need to scale the heights or plumb the depths because Christ has died, Christ has come down from heaven, or Christ has been in the depths. Christ died and then rose from the again, rose, rose, rose again. The point is that in verse 8, we don't have to strain and struggle to get hold of it, but in actual fact, God's righteousness is near you. It is so close that it's in your mouth and it's in your heart the message concerning faith that we proclaim. As Christoph again was saying earlier, the whole point of the law was that it was attached so closely to the lives of, of the Jews. They had it on their door frames, they had it on their arms and legs. What actually God wanted wasn't this outward show of, of, of piety or enthusiasm for the law, but actually what the Deuteronomy 30 chapter goes on, sorry, that Paul's quoting from here goes on to say, is that actually God wanted people to have circumcised hearts. The idea was that their lives had to be transformed. And it wasn't just this outward show, it was the fact that they were going to live as God's people the way he had intended. And so the thing is that actually what God wants as his followers now is people whose very heart um, there our mouths and our heart are proclaiming the message of faith that, that we hold dear. In verse 9, Paul goes on to introduce us to one of the creeds that was probably about in the early church. He says that if we declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can see why it makes sense as a creed because what it is is saying, do you make Jesus Lord of your life? Is Jesus going to be the boss of what's important to you, of how you want to live? And also, do you believe in a God who sent his son to die on the cross, be raised from the dead? And if so, this is salvation for you. God who has power over life and death. And the challenge as we sit here is, what about us? Are we people who actually have, have 
declared this? Do we say with our mouth that Jesus is Lord? And have we believed in our heart that God raised him from the dead? Because that is the salvation test that Paul gives us today. The danger is some of us have sat in Presbyterian pews since we were babes in arms. And the trouble is that we could know all this. We could, ha- we could have heard this many, millions of times. We could recite it better than I can standing here tonight. And the issue is that yet we've never said that Jesus is Lord of our lives. Some of us are actually sitting or struggling, and we've tried to say that Jesus is Lord of our lives, but we can't feel that resurrection power in our lives so that we can claim victories over sin, over fear, over guilt. And for some of us tonight, it may be that saying this sentence one more time is an opportunity for us to go that Jesus is not Lord of my life. And it's an opportunity to be, be ask him to take control and to have that resurrection power in your life one more time. Paul goes on to explain it better. He says that if you, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. It's not a challenge for those of us who would say that we've called on Jesus, we've had him as our Lord of our lives, and we've had him, we've had that power, resurrection power in our lives. How many of us are actually professing and speaking of him to our friends and family in our workplace? Polycarp was an early church father in 150 AD. He was forced by the Roman officials to offer incense to the Roman rulers of the time. And when he was sort of given the choice of being burnt or sort of renouncing his faith in Jesus, he replied by saying, Eighty and six years I have served him, Jesus. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Bring forth what you will. 150 AD, there were people who were willing to be burnt at the stake um, so that they wouldn't renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. They were willing to confess, profess their faith, and be saved, having believed and been justified. Interesting thing is that it's not just sort of 1900 years ago that people were doing that. One of the challenges of my job is that sometimes I have to break bad news to people and say that we're unable to offer treatment for fairly serious um, stages of cancer. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had the really, I suppose, enjoyable experience of the unfortunate thing was that I had to to tell a guy that unfortunately had a fairly um, late diagnosis of lung cancer. And there wasn't an awful lot that we could do with him. And that, you know, the the chances are that this would have, this will could curtail his life. And one of the things was, and a beautiful moment was, that he just turned around to me and my consultant who were standing there having shared that with him and said, well, I'm not afraid of dying. The nature is that I've given my life to Jesus Christ some years ago. I believed in him and I trust in him that he will see me through death and I will be with him on the other side. He believed in his heart and was professing his faith. As scripture says in verse 11, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Paul goes on to say there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same is the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, there's a comparison. If you were with me way back in November time, we were in the middle of Romans 3. And the thing is, there's the real universality there of Romans 3.23 when we're saying all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And bang, Paul reiterates 
the, the converse of that. The idea is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's the universality of the condemnation, the idea that nobody is perfect and nobody's going to get right with God through obeying the law and doing what they can do. But wow, there's the universality here that anybody who calls to be rescued by God um, through what God has done through Jesus Christ can be saved, can have that relationship with God restored with him. I want to pause at that point and just go, wow, just be amazed once again by those verses that we've just, we've just traveled through. This idea that we don't need to struggle to get this right relationship with God. There's this idea that we don't need to work hard at this law to get the this, this 693 laws that there used to be in the Old Testament to really work hard and strain at those. The, the thing that's amazing about grace is that all we have to do is call on Jesus Call upon the Lord and trust in him and we will be saved. That is miraculous. And the worrying thing is that we can go away tonight and go, that's kind of miraculous. But the point is that the world needs to hear this. Your friends, your families, the people on the streets wandering around here tonight, enjoying the fact that Ireland beat England over the weekend. These are the people who need to have their lives transformed by this amazing grace in their lives. Bally Hackamore needs to hear this, and we've got to share this. Paul shows us our responsibility by a series of rhetorical questions. In verse 14, he says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That quote is a reference from whenever the Israelites brought the good news that they were released from Babylonian exile. These people who had brought the good news were celebrated in Old Testament literature because this was a, a momentous event in the life of God's people. How much more are we going to rejoice in those people who share the good news of Jesus Christ to bring not freedom from exile in Babylonia, but freedom from control from the evil one, freedom from guilt, from sin, from fear. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God's eyes, God's face will be smiling as we go out into these streets to try and teach people about the love of Jesus Christ. We return to Paul's thoughts at the start of the chapter whenever he says, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. We have a choice whether we're going to be involved in sharing this life-changing relationship so that it rolls off our lips and echoes through our lives. The point is that if you come to church this evening, already you're being a witness to God in the community with your friends and family. And the choice that we have is we can choose to be a good one or a bad one. It's not whether we will be one or whether we won't. The point is that by, by aligning yourself with Christianity, you are a visual aid for God on this earth. The challenge is, is it our heart's desire to see people come to faith? Is it something that actually drives us again to our knees? Are we willing to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with our friends, our family, and the people in the streets round about us? Is it our heart's desire? Does it drive us to cry to God? 
Paul goes on and deals with some of the excuses that the Israelites, why the Israelites haven't believed, and deconstructs some of these excuses given by those who don't believe today. He goes on by saying, you know, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Jesus Christ. But he asks, you know, have they not heard? And then he goes on to say, well, of course they did. God's voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. This is a quote from Psalms, which is, is originally talking about creation. But the point is that we're part of God's missionary adventure, which is going to the ends of the earth. Just as God reveals his character through creation, so more so is God going to reveal the specific revelation of his grace to the four corners of the globe. The point is that as we look around Ballyhackamore and get excited about trying to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the people in the streets and the community around about us, this is going on throughout the world. And there's this exciting idea that as we meet here tonight and as we think about what's going on through the 24 hours of, of this Sunday in March, there have been people meeting in every part of the world, in every corner. There are Christian people worshipping God, making him Lord of their lives and claiming his resurrection power on their lives. We're part in this small corner of the world of God's great missionary adventure, speaking into the world. Moses, he quotes Moses again by saying, it's not that people haven't heard. Did Israel not understand in verse 19? Did the Jews not understand what both Moses and Isaiah had been saying? But what actually Paul points to is the fact that Israel knew and understood God, but rejected him, while the Gentiles who didn't understand were blessed by God by knowing him. As it says there, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. You will be made envious because of the Gentiles having this amazing relationship with God. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. The point was the Gentiles were the clueless ones. They didn't have this um, sort of depth of a relationship with God. And so they made the Israelites envious because they had this, they found this righteousness from God through Jesus Christ. As Paul writes earlier in chapter 9, the Israelites were stumbling over the stumbling stone. The point was that Jesus is either the foundation of your life or it's a rock on which you stumble. And that was Israel's fate. We've seen this evening that we have a need to be concerned for our brothers and sisters. It's our heart's desire. It was Paul's heart's desire to see people saved that drove him to prayer. We've seen that we need to pray and we've heard the message that we need to proclaim and the fact that we do need to see it um, proclaimed to the world and the need to respond in faith. The question is, though, to whom do we do all this? And Paul quotes two fantastic pictures of who God is. I'll read them here. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask me. God reveals himself to those people who we think are beyond the gospel, those who didn't ask, those people who we think in our family are unlikely to respond, those people who we think in the community around about us are so far removed from God, but yet God is a God who reveals himself to those who did not seek him, to those who did not ask for me. And even better, in verse 21, there's this fantastic picture of a God who all day long is holding out his arms 
to a disobedient and obstinate people. Wow. As we look at what Paul is saying to us about the message that we need to preach of this opportunity of being right before God by what he has done, by this grace that is so amazing and outstanding and just awe-inspiring of this amazing grace and the fact that we need to bring this good news of Jesus Christ to all that we come across. The God who we are talking about is a God who all day long is standing with his arms open waiting to receive you home. Wow. Wow. The thing that that drives me to is to think about those people that we need to be praying for, the people that we need to be speaking to. The fact that God is wanting to welcome his children home, a God who reveals himself to those who don't seek him, a God whose arms are opening open all day long to welcome people home. Let's pray.